Please turn with me in your Bible, or you can listen along with your ears to the reading of God's Word. This morning from Luke chapter 15, we'll pick up in verse 11. But the whole chapter is about repentance. And in God's providence, uh, I chose this because this passage was on my heart, but in God's providence, just next week, I believe, Pastor Dan will be picking up in a series on the Lord's Prayer with the clause, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, also on forgiveness and repentance. So this may be an extended introduction to that. Let's hear now from God's word. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the paws that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything that I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. Please pray with me. 
Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Having heard your word now, we seek to understand it and apply it to our lives, and so we pray that you would illuminate our mind and open our heart and ready our will to respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, probably like many of your households, right now mine is flush with candy. It's on the dinner table, it's on the floor, I'm stepping on it. It reminds me of something that's a bit of a relic now, which is when I used to go to the movie theater, and you, know, you weren't supposed to bring candy into the movie theater, I understand many of us circumvented that, but if you're playing by the rules, you had to go to the concession and buy candy, and it was very expensive, and it came in big boxes. And I remember the first time that I spent my well-earned money on one of those boxes and opened it in the movie theater, only to discover it about a quarter full. And I was angry. And this introduced to me one of the sharp edges of our economy, which is shrinkflation. This idea that as prices increase, if, a, uh, if someone wants to sell a product at the same price point, they can choose to gradually decrease the quantity of the product, reduce what was in the box, until the point where you have this large box a quarter full. In just the same way, we can reduce the full gospel of God subtly over time de-emphasizing certain parts of it to such an extent that it is no longer the gospel. And I think we'll see this in our passage this morning, that we can reduce the gospel. You know, one helpful tool that I've learned recently, and I expect that you might begin hearing rumors of throughout our church, to help preach the gospel to ourselves, to apply the full gospel to the life of a Christian, is this tool called the Gospel Waltz. You know, this waltz, this three-step dance, it's getting at this idea that the gospel can, applying the gospel to your life can be put in three main parts. These will not surprise you, it's definitely not innovative, but it helps get at the fundamental truths of applying the gospel to your life. They are repent, believe, and obey. We repent and believe and obey in following Jesus in the Christian life, applying the gospel to our lives. Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry, but confessing our sin, trying to get at the root of our sin, the, the idol that we are following instead of God, turning from that and returning to Jesus and receiving his forgiveness. That's repentance. And then belief. This trust in God, this faith in who God is, remembering who he is and what he has done, resting in his promises to us. That he who began a good work in you will bring it about to completion. Belief. And then finally, obedience. We obey. We seek to live out our belief in concrete action in this newness of life. And of course, this gospel waltz can take 30 minutes of deep reflection, perhaps journaling or in, before the Lord, but it can also be as quick as 30-second prayer. And we'll go through examples of what this looks like as we walk through our passage this morning, but the reason I bring this up is that this is the full gospel applied to your life, but just like shrinkflation, we can subtly reduce the gospel from these three key pillars down to perhaps only two. Slowly de-emphasize one of them to the point of omission. And so imagine, if you repent, you, you're sorry for what you've done, and you believe that God is good and gracious, but that never moves you to obedience, 
That's no longer the gospel. You find yourself in a place of what we call licentiousness. It's this cheap grace of the gospel never making your life new and transforming you. Likewise, if you obey the Father, if you, if you want to obey a moral code, is how I should put it, if you want to obey and do what is right, do good works, and you're, you, you repent when you make mistakes. Ah, really messed up. But there's never belief in a personal, true God of the Bible. We call that moralism. There's, there's no personal God to hold you accountable to. You just, you just want to generally be a good person. That, that's not the gospel. And then finally, the last permutation of this is you believe that God is good and righteous and holy. And you obey. You do good works. But you don't repent. We call that legalism. And the audience of this parable, of, of the whole of chapter 5 of Luke 15, these Pharisees and teachers of the law that we see in verse 1, they had done this. They had reduced the full gospel down to the point where they de-emphasized repentance, perhaps to the point of even omitting it altogether. And I would argue this morning, church, we too often reduce the gospel by avoiding repentance. Consider for a second how we find ourselves here in Montclair, in Essex County, which selects for people who are well-to-do and competent in making their way in a suburb of the biggest city in our nation. Furthermore, you are at church this morning, and that is a minority. And so, I mean, you're doing pretty well. And that, I believe, makes us uniquely liable to the temptation of reducing the gospel by omitting repentance like the original audience of this passage. But as we will see in God's word, the Father rejoices in our repentance. Look with me at chapter 15 of Luke, where he begins with this parable of the lost sheep, which concludes, Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then, just following that in the parable of the lost coin, he says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Which then brings us to our passage of the parable of the lost son. The father rejoices in our repentance. There's a party in heaven over it, we learn. And so the question to us this morning now, as we walk through our text, is how can we join in that party? We don't want to be left out. And we see two examples in our passage, two main points this morning of how we can join in, and they are we turn from vice and we turn from virtue. Turn from vice and even from virtue. And so let's look first at how we might turn from vice to enter into the Father's party. We begin in verse 12, where the Son makes this terrible request. Give me my share of the estate. Now, of course, you receive an inheritance when the individual passes away. And so effectively, the younger son is saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. Now, how would a typical ancient Near East father in Jesus' day answer such a request? They would rain down blows, verbal if not physical, on their disobedient son. But this father allows it. At great cost to himself, 
In verse 12, he divides his property amongst his two heirs, his, his two sons. And in their day, they had this principle of primogeniture, which just means that the firstborn son received a double portion along with additional responsibilities. And so two-thirds would go to him and then one-third to the younger brother. So effectively, the father now has to sell off a third of his possessions so that he can inherit his younger son. And his inheritance was not in a bank. It was in his land. That was where his wealth lay. And his land was his identity, his belonging, his honor. And so by selling off his ancestral land, it would deeply shame the father. And ask any farmer who has held on to land for generations, passed down in their family, at what price they'd be willing to part with it. There is no price. And yet this son, this father, sells it and gives it to his son and sends him on his way. So then how does the son use this new fortune? Does he start a business? Does he get a degree? No, he descends into vice, we see in verse 3. It says he squandered his wealth on wild living. He is prodigal in his spending on vice in pursuit of his happiness. I'll never forget seeing Greg alone in his dorm room Surrounded by trash, smelling like cheap beer, and facing suspension from college. You might know this, but I, for several years in my college experience, I, I worked as an RA, a resident assistant. And one of our duties was to patrol the floor of the dorm halls. And uh, one student on a nearby floor, I'll call Greg, he was the life of the party. He seemed so carefree and laid back. We would walk the halls at night, definitely try to turn a blind eye as much as we could to most offenses, but I mean, there's a certain point where if the noise gets too loud and the students get too sloppy, we, ha we were compelled to call the campus police. And Greg, though underage, apparently had a connection to buy beer. And he was prodigal with his sharing. He made many friends. But one night, they made too much noise and were too sloppy, and we called the campus police and so it was that they showed up, all his friends ran, leaving him alone in this dark place. Like any headlong hedonistic pursuit of sex or money or power to fill us, it leads us to this dark place. And so it is in verse 16 that the younger son finds himself in the pig's sty, starving, and no one gave him anything. but this gives him space to think. And so in verse 17, it says the son came to his senses. The immensity of being at death's door has a way of clearing our minds and helping us focus. And the son examines his beliefs about the father. He doubts his doubts about his dad. You know, he knows he's forfeit his right to be a son, but he dares to hope Maybe he would receive me not as a son, but as a hired servant. Even that would be a grace. So he dares to hope. Perhaps maybe I can make up for what I've done slowly over time. Because a hired worker, a hired servant was a day laborer. Unlike other servants who might live on the, the father's land, a hired servant lived off the land and received a daily wage. So perhaps over an immense amount of time he could begin to pay back, make some sort of restitution for what he had done. So he sets out. 
And in verse 12, uh, verse 20, the son returns. And the father has waited for this day, and so he spies his son while a long way off. Now, how might we expect the father to respond in this situation? I mean, remember how badly the son has shamed his dad. I mean, earthly fathers, just tapping like you're at the kitchen table, this will be good. I wonder what he's going to say. Or perhaps the bitterness of the shame and loss just wells up in hot anger. But not this father. He is filled with compassion. Before a word can leave the son's mouth, the father is running to his son, throws his arms about him, and covers him in kisses. I mean, ancient Near East fathers did not run. Boys and girls ran. Young men might run. Fathers did not run, but this father's love for his son outpaces the social norms of his day. And so in verse 21, emboldened by the father's bear hug, the son begins to repent to his dad. Just as he musters the courage to ask to be a hired servant, the father interrupts him. You are my son. Verse 24. This son of mine was dead, but now he's alive. Again. The sonship he forfeited, the father now confers upon him. Now the son would have reeked of the pigsty, and the father transforms him into a son. Bring, bring the best robe, the ring, sandals for his feet. And what must be the, the, one of the happiest days in the father's life, he's compelled to celebrate. Slaughter the fattened calf. Let's have a feast. In an age before deep freezers and refrigeration, you, you didn't slaughter a fattened calf for supper with your family. A quail would do for that, perhaps. And a, a goat, you could have a large dinner party. But the fattened calf... I mean, when was the last time you saw a cow? They're huge. Everyone in town would need to be invited to make a dent in it. This was a party. So the son turns from vice and returns to his father. And so the invitation for us this morning is, are we lost in vice? Vice being, you know, a behavior or a habit Perhaps we know to be wrong, and for the Christian, this would be this kind of high-handed sin where we know it's wrong, but we go to it. Not sin that we're unaware of, but we're consciously engaging in. You feel some conviction over it, perhaps, but you just can't shake it. And there's this lie that we believe, I, I need this vice to cope with the stress in my life, to let off some steam. It's, it's not so bad, right? It's not hurting anyone. And so we indulge and we binge and we let our eyes wander and we experiment and we explore to see how much we can push sex and money and power to satisfy us. But they hold diminishing returns. The more we lean on these things, the more they disappoint. They're never intended to be used in this way. And so over time, the pleasure becomes pain and then a chain. You no longer recognize where you are or who you've become, and you are lost. But then hear the Father's invitation to come home and to join in this party over repentance, where we can apply this gospel loss, this full gospel to our lives in this place where we repent. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. We confess our sins to God through Jesus Christ. And then we believe 
We, we doubt our doubts about the Father, that God is not an overbearing Father waiting to catch us doing wrong and slap us on the wrist. But he's standing at the window, eagerly waiting for our return. With his bear hug embrace, he empowers us to new obedience and even to repent. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, which then leads us to new obedience, to obey. That we will perhaps take off a certain behavior and put on a new habit. That we endeavor to put to death the sin that has led us to this place of darkness and to put on the righteousness of Christ, following after his footsteps in our action. So first in this passage, we've seen that we can turn from vice to return to the Father's party. But this passage doesn't end there. It continues to show us how we are also to turn even from our virtue to come back to the Father's party. See, God wants us to be holy and righteous and to to grow in Christian virtue. So don't hear me say that. But as we'll see, our virtue can be a means when we twist it to keep us away from the Father and away from repentance. And the story so far is very well known But often our memory of it can stop here. But only now are we actually getting to the crux of the story, the reason why Jesus is telling this parable. You know, we hear the father's reception of the younger brother as sweet and moving. But the original audience of verse 1, these Pharisees and teachers of the law, would have had a very different reaction, closer to disgust at what they perceived as the father's leniency and weakness. And we see their response come to life in the older brother's response. And so we turn to verse 25, where we see the older brother coming in from the field. He hears the music and the dancing, and that must have been perplexing. The brother has returned, and the servant tells him, your younger brother has returned, and this party is all for him. And the older brother's heart is exposed in verse 28. He is furious. In verse 29 and 30, we see that he, he, he gives the rationale for his anger. You haven't, Father, given me even a goat, but you slaughter the fattened calf for him? He has squandered your property with prostitutes while I've been slaving away for you year after year. I deserve the fattened calf, the robe, the ring, the sandals, the party, not this disgrace who used to be a younger brother to me but is no longer. We see that clearly in verse 30, where he says to his father, this son of yours. He can't even call him his brother. Then the father has gone out to plead with this older son. And in verse 31, he reminds him, everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. Verse 24 and in verse 32, my son was dead. Many of us know what it's like to lose someone dear to us, either to death or by estrangement. And so we can feel, in part, what must be the happiest joy in the Father's life. But look, he's alive. He was lost, but is now found. Come and share in my happiness. Full stop. The parable ends here. We're left without a resolution, begging the question, what will the older brother do? The older brother has reduced the full gospel of God to this two-step. 
where the older brother believes the father is honorable and disciplined and wealthy and wise and worthy of obeying. So the older brother obeys. He has never disobeyed his father, and we we can take that at his, his word. No reason to doubt that. He's measured up to the father's high standards, but what he can't comprehend, what he's omitted from the gospel, is repentance. Let alone responding to his brother's repentance with forgiveness. And so his father's grace is ultimately a mystery to him. Even worse, infuriating to him. And so in a very deep way, he does not know his own dad. Will the older brother then return from his virtue? Several years ago, I was standing in this great assembly hall. I had the honor of attending our denomination's general assembly. I got there a little early, and like all Christians everywhere, I took the back seats. (laughs) I noticed out of the corner of my eye that in my row was a brother that I went to seminary with. I had many classes with him, but I also knew enough of his story since then to know that he had fallen into vice. His marriage had fallen apart, and he was disqualified from being a pastor. Now, I knew intellectually that the penalty for sin is death, all sin, and we all need Jesus, but I don't always feel that way. Certain sins really push my buttons more than others. And maybe because a healthy marriage I know personally takes so much work that when I saw him throw his down the drain, I was livid. And as I'm in this worship service, I can hear this internal dialogue in my head. Thank God I'm not like him. Thank God I have a great marriage unlike him. Thank God I'm qualified to be a pastor unlike him. Then I saw something else. We are in this worship service singing songs, and he is just pouring his heart out in worship. And I can just tell he's worshiping in a way that you only can when you're fully reliant on God. I get a little angry and jealous. Why is he experiencing God closer and more intimately than me? He certainly doesn't deserve it. I've worked harder. I've been better. And then, of course, God's word hit me like a pillowcase full of bricks. I'm the recovering older brother. I need to repent of clinging to my virtue as a pedestal to look down on my brother. This morning, are you a recovering older brother or sister? Have you used your virtue to distance yourself from people who have messed up in big ways but have come seeking God's grace? Do you see God more like a manager than as your father? You just need to do a good job, and he will be pleased and give you what you want, what you really want, health and protection and success in your vacation rather than intimacy with your father. You see, when you see the unworthy receive grace, does it trigger jealousy in your heart? Right now, we live in a cultural moment when legalism is very much in fashion, We can choose a tribe, whether political or ideological or even the false religion that masquerades as Christianity, which the older brother was following, and they each have their own moral standard. You need to believe the right things, conform in your belief, but you also need to obey. This has to lead out to action. You must do the right things, dress the right way, stay away from the wrong people. But in all these iterations of legalism, there is no room for repentance or forgiveness. 
And so for those who have adhered to these false religions and follow them for a time and then fall out of favor with them, they've transgressed this moral code in some way, they are canceled and become untouchable, even if they are willing and ready to change, repent, if you will. So it leads to this good news, this false gospel of hatreds and resentments, vilifications, put-downs, and insults. But compare this with the true, the full gospel of Christ, where we can repent. Father, forgive me for seeing you as a manager instead of my father for making light of my sin and overmuch of my virtue, for judging others harshly based on their actions, but judging myself graciously based on my intentions. And we can believe. We don't merit God's favor by our virtue. That's a path to exhaustion. It's God's unconditional love, which comes first and then fuels. It's the energy for our obedience. That we all stand level at the foot of the cross, and we can rejoice with heaven over the repentance of the tax collector and of the prostitute and that leads us then to obey maybe this looks like for us this morning leaning toward people we feel like most pulling away from maybe it means asking ourselves when was the last time i repented truly when when was that the day in the hour to god to my spouse, in front of my children. For repent and believe and obey this gospel waltz. This is the daily pattern for those of us seeking to follow after Jesus' footsteps. Brothers and sisters, friends gathered this morning, we do have this tendency to reduce the gospel of God to less than what it is. But God has invited us to turn from vice and even turn from virtue and join in this raucous party in heaven over repentance. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your spirit, which accompanies the preaching of your word and maybe work in our lives right now, convicting us of either our vice or perhaps even of how we've improperly used virtue. And God, we pray that even now you would be reminding us of who you are, that you are the, the Father, eager to welcome us home, who meets us while we're a long ways off, and is ready to extend new grace and new mercy and new love. All this we pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.